0: Hi, and welcome to Profoundly. I'm your host, Pips Taylor, and this podcast harnesses the wisdom of a -a one-of-a-kind global community. Profoundly is for women who want to grow, learn, connect, and thrive. Each week, I'll be chatting to industry leaders and experts in our network. We'll be giving you a taster of what Fem Foundry is all about, and I'll be joined by guests to discuss burning issues for us today and sharing their life experience and inspiring us to just be. Fem Foundry is a one stop digital space for anyone who identifies as a woman to connect, learn, unite, and belong freely on their own terms. With this podcast, we'll be bringing our leaders to you, sharing industry expertise, personal stories, and advice. help you navigate every element of your life from the professional to the very personal no jargon no filters just open honest conversation this is real talk about the issues that affect real women along with expert guidance informed analysis and honest discussion you are very welcome here if you want to just listen we hope that you'll find something to inspire educate challenge or spark your curiosity and if you want to join the debate connect with our guests or find out more by adding your voice to our global community at Fem Foundry. Our doors are always open. We're here to start the conversation, but we're hoping you'll be the ones to finish it. Welcome to the club. It's a huge honour to welcome Chris Helenga to profoundly this week. As the founder of breast cancer charity Copperfield, Chris has convinced a generation of women to check their boobs and works tirelessly to raise awareness of breast cancer among young people. Chris was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer at the age of 23. After her symptoms were initially overlooked because of her young age, along with her twin sister Marin, Chris launched Copperfield in 2009, and since then the charity has been a beacon of light and positivity, spreading a crucial life-saving message with wit, joy, and colour. Through her work with Copperfield, Chris has succeeded in getting cancer onto the school curriculum and was awarded a Pride of Britain award for her charity work. Chris is the author of Sunday Times best selling book, Glittering a Turd, a handbook for living life to the fullest, shining a new perspective on cancer and learning to glitter your own turd, whatever it might be. Chris, welcome to Profoundly. You are, I would say, an absolute force of nature you know you're a new author you're an activist you're a campaigner and you are a survivor and thriver of cancer and you have convinced a whole generation to check their boobs Uh, I feel you've done more in with your life than than most people have and I would just love to talk to you about your your story today because you are a woman on a mission and you've always been a woman on a mission (laughs) Let's start with surviving the unsurvivable, which is kind of essentially what what you've done. You were diagnosed at the age of 23, which is incredibly young, uh, with stage four breast cancer. Can you share a little bit about your diagnosis and, and the time leading up to it?
1: Yeah, so I was 22 when I first noticed something was up with my boob, um, but only because it was quite painful, quite obvious to me at this point. I was literally noticing this massive lump when every time I get changed and I put my bra, Um, and it was only when I sort of had a chat with my mum and sister about it that I decided I should probably go get it checked out, and because of my age... It was, well, it was kind of put down to having hormonal changes and right. probably my cycle and the fact I was on the pill at the time. So it was kind of ignored and I was really reassured by that. Uh, and so it wasn't until the symptoms started to get a bit worse and I'd wake up in the night with a really hot and painful boob and I couldn't lie on my stomach at night and a few other things that I finally went back to the GP and said I need to get this checked out again and also... I asked for a referral. I ended up having to ask to be referred because after three visits to GP and them telling me every time that I was a young woman and it was likely to be anything bad, um, I thought, well, I kind of need a professional a specialist to tell me that. Yeah. Um, And and that's when I was finally referred.
0: Yeah. And do you think it's because it was your age that the GPs just wouldn't take it seriously?
1: Yeah. I absolutely think that it's very unlikely for a GP to have a young woman in their early twenties, sit in front of them, and for it to actually be breast cancer, hormonal things are very, very common. Um, our hormones are doing all sorts of crazy things all the time, as you well know. You're a woman yourself, and uh, your boobs do change in as, with your monthly cycle. But um, this wasn't normal for me, and that wasn't the conversation that we really had about what was really normal. Yeah. Um, and so it was it was dismissed unfairly, and also young. Uh, Like the the too young for breast cancer thing is very much not a thing. Um, Anyone can get breast cancer at any age. Yes, it's less common, but it isn't impossible. And so I think a whole lot of, um, a whole combination of things led to them dismissing Mm -hmm. it.
0: You fought to see the consultant and then it was then that you got your your diagnosis. Exactly.
1: So... um, you kind of get into entered into the system you kind of uh you have to wait to be seen by the breast clinic um thankfully in the UK that wait should not be any longer than two weeks now um but at that time because my case was not urgent and because I was under the age of 30 it was deemed um not urgent and therefore I could have been waiting up to 10 weeks for my appointment but again my mum was very good at making me Ring up for cancellations. Yep. So I managed to get seen quicker than that. Um, and even then, you go in, you have some conversations about your changes, you, you, you repeat exactly what you been telling your GP. And then um, I was given an ultrasound to, to see what the actual lump was whether it was liquid or solid mass. We discovered it was a solid mass, but that still didn't convince him that it was necessarily breast cancer. So he wanted to wait another three weeks for me to come off my pill and see if that would um, sort of even things out. And that by that point, I mean, I'd come off the pill anyway because I was done with it. Um, and I didn't want that to be an excuse for not having been investigated. Yeah. So after those three weeks, I went back and finally had a biopsy, which is where they put your needle in and they take a little section of the whatever the mass is. And I also had a mammogram. And then one week later, I was told it was breast cancer. And then because I'd been having pains in my back, and, um, uh, which I'd mentioned to my doctor, he said, well, I'd really like to check the rest of your body just to rule, just to make sure that it hasn't gone anywhere else. Um, and unfortunately, it already had. So one week later, I was told it was already stage four, which is the last stage of breast cancer, which is also known as secondary breast cancer, when it's spread beyond the primary, which is your breast, and it's somewhere else, more mm-hmm. cosy. And at that point, it was just my spine. Um, yeah, cancer is a
0: sneaky little thing. That's such a difficult diagnosis to get at any point in your life, but mm. I think even even more difficult to to, to to take on when you're of such a young age.
1: I think when you're particularly when you're younger, you have a bit of um, this uh, sense of immortality and. And feeling like life is there to be taken, and 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 all these things that you hear about happen to other people. Um, so I, I it came as a shock to me for so many reasons. Yes, because of my age, but also I think because of the attitude from the get go around. Like the word cancer never came up, mm. and also because I had no reference to cancer other than what was I'd seen in like films and TV shows. Like so, I it was just it completely floored me um for so many reasons um but I guess the one good thing is that you kind of you have to turn into action mode you're given a plan you have to start treatment and then you know you just keep going,
0: and I think this is something that is incredibly admirable of, of you because you you have kept going at every at every point, and you have through the work that you 've done uh, you founded Copperfield, I think it was in two thousand and nine, which has you know grown into being a hugely influential mm-hmm. charity, raising two million pounds a year, which is yeah. huge you know you genuinely changed the attitudes of a generation in terms of awareness and information on how to check your boobs. And that's all come from you receiving this this diagnosis. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's absolutely phenomenal the work that you do. I'm genuinely in awe of you as a person and what you've what you've done with Copperfield. I know you started off at, at festivals with your boobets um, on the ground, showing people how to to check check your boobs and properly. Um, but you were going through chemotherapy at the point of, of setting up Copperfield. Uh, and raising Mm -hmm. awareness, doing treatment and raising awareness. What was that period like for you? So it wasn't long after my diagnosis that I decided that Copperfield had to happen.
1: Um, It was kind of like one of those eureka moments like okay so what happened to me shouldn't happen to anyone else and how can I make that happen so I kind of realized that there had been so many points in my life where I could have been told to check myself or be more aware of my body and changes and then um, I couldn't help but think well if no one else is going to do it maybe I should be the one that starts something or speaks to the right people to make sure that this happens as standard Um, but our first sort of Testing of the water was going to festivals and going to where young people hang out, getting into their habitats and kind of saying, Hey, this we're not going to scare you, but there's a stink called breast cancer, or you know, um and we'd really like you to get to know your boobs I'd recently been diagnosed, I was having chemotherapy at the time, trying to shrink the tumor that was by now like quite a big tumor in my breast. Um, But I had a lot of time on my hands. Like it sounds very strange, but like suddenly you're kind of, when you are diagnosed with something like that, you're kind of grounded. Um, But I didn't have a job at the time. I was living back with my mum because I'd just come back from working and living in China. Um, And so, apart from going to the hospital and getting treatment, I had all this dead time, too much time in my head potentially, um, that instead of kind of allowing all the feelings, I decided to channel into something that was potentially useful for others and because no other no other organization was doing this the breast cancer charities were focusing on support and research I thought well then we have to like there was there was no like option really there was like uh well if no one else is doing this we kind of feel like we have to and when I say we it was me and my twin sister Marin, yeah. who I dragged from her garden design career and and friends that I could rope into doing it, because I don't know someone who's been diagnosed with cancer close to me. But you I, I believe you feel very helpless. You feel like you want to help in some way, you want to do something tangible. And if I and at that time I said, Well, I've got this campaign idea, can you help me with that? And they were like, Absolutely. None of us had any training in like health education. Um, but what we did have was passion, yeah. <laughs> enthusiasm. Um, and knowledge that would, we knew could help people. And we were young, we were our audience, we were, you know, we were who we were speaking to. So that was enough. It was yeah. enough.
0: And I feel it really, it's, you know, really kind of, you really connected with, with everyone, because... You know, despite it being a, you know a really serious message, everything with Copperfield is like so full of joy and color, and the language is really accessible, and it's it's young, and it just it worked. And and having you know seeing you guys at, at festivals, and then going on to you know present for you at Festifield which is one of your big mm-hmm. music festivals, which I absolutely loved. Uh You know, it it's it was amazing to kind of be a part of that and to see you know the people that you were affecting, and then of course outcome you know then the the stories that i know that you've you've had people connecting with you through through similar experiences what was it like when you started getting messages from people who were going through a similar experience to you
1: in a way a huge relief that hard work was kind of paying off and that we were doing wasn't a complete waste of time um you know it's always bittersweet really obviously you never want to hear that someone else has been diagnosed um it's such a prevalent illness it's like you know one in two of us will get cancer so we will be touched by it in some way um which is a hideous thing but uh and I try not to focus too much on that and the fact that this cancer shouldn't even be a thing anymore and I try to focus more on what can be done and the proactivity of what we can do for our health, for our own well-being and our own health and so when people started to come forward and say, hey, I now feel more confident to check myself and I feel like I can have those conversations that before I felt really scary, but I feel really empowered because we basically, we became a charity in October 2009, officially. Yes. And then by the January of the next year, um, just so within a few months, people, was, we got our first sort of message and uh, story come forward from a girl called Jenny who said, I wouldn't have gone back to the GP had I not known about your story and listened to what Copperfield had to say. And she was subsequently diagnosed with early breast cancer. Um, and that was that was really a pivotal moment for us because I think when you're slogging away at something, a bit of a thankless task, and you're not sure if you're really having any impact on people. And I hate wasting time when you've got breast cancer, the last thing you wanted to be doing is wasting time, wasting your own time and wasting people's time and wasting public money. So you know for me a charity really only should exist if it can sh- demonstrate impact and it shows that it makes a difference and if it doesn't then it shouldn't ex- it should cease to exist. Um, and so for me to have that proof that what we were doing was having an impact, was potentially saving lives was a moment where I thought this is not something that
0: I can stop. As I say, it's been phenomenal to watch and to see, you know, to see everything grow from, you know, the, those early festival fields to then a fully fledged charity. And, you know, you also mm. have won a Pride of Britain Award, uh, which is absolutely <laughs> phenomenal for the work that you did. Um and I know from from your book, which we'll get onto in a second, that your whole family knew that that's what you were getting, but you you didn't. <laughs> you didn't know what was what was that moment like for you? Because it's I can't imagine how overwhelming it must have been. So it was particularly surreal because Andy
1: and Lou from Little Britain presented me with my invite to the awards, telling me that I'd won. Um, and I was it was very baffling for me because. Um, all I'd really done and I'm not saying this to be bashful and I'm not saying this because I'm being modest because I for that at that moment I didn't really feel like we really proven that what we we're doing really worked and um that I'd really achieved anything yet um so we'd been to, yes we'd been to a few festivals so you know we'd created Copperfield as a campaign but we weren't a charity yet and I'd started a blog um and obviously I was getting my story out there so what Winnie meant to me was um, uh, a real motivator to prove that what I was actually doing was worthy of the award <laughs> that I could say because of my work that I do, we have affected people's lives in this way. Um, and uh, and because Copperfield was suddenly a name, a household name, um, it, it it was a real push to like make, make it the best it can possibly be. Um, and I, you know, I, but having said that, I was receiving so i mean so many messages that night, and um what I wasn't expecting is people messaging me saying, Thank you for not wearing a wig on stage. Thank you for having a completely bald head on telly because I think so often cancer patients feel like they have to hide away their illness. Um, And that wasn't really a massively conscious decision on my part to not wear a wig. I just hated my wig. It was like a really crappy NHS one that was like so plasticky and rank. And I I didn't want to wear it. It was really itchy. Um, My hair just started to grow back so I had a bit of bum fluff on my head. I just it wasn't a conscious decision it was just like a why should I care what people think um so and that but that came really naturally to me and having heard so many stories from people saying I can't even not wear my wig around my kids but you've kind of given me a bit of confidence to have those conversations with the people in my life that was like wow I had no idea that me have not wearing a wig on stage on telly um would have such a profound impact on people so you know it 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 was a catalyst for a lot of things, a lot of change and a real boost to my mental health, physical health. I I definitely think my hair started growing back so much quicker after that announcement. And it was a real buzz. It was a real, really healthy, joyful buzz. But I will caveat that and say that I wanted to, I hadn't proven what, what I was doing really, truly worked yet. Had, and I, and now, now, if I stood on the stage and I was given that award, I'd be like, yep, I deserve this. And, I, and that feels really good to be able to say that. Yeah. You know, because um, I think women in particular are never felt, uh, always are uh, meant to feel a little bit like we have to be modest about our achievements and we have to not celebrate too much because we don't want to be too loud and take up too much space. And, you know, um, and I feel like, no, fuck that. Yeah.
0: I'm absolutely with you on that. It's double fuck that and scream about it from the rooftops since then you've gone on to get cancer on the school curriculum uh, through the work that you do campaigning you're an honorary doctorate uh, what would you say is your proudest is your proudest achievement for me it always comes back
1: down to impact and the lives that have been potentially changed for the better um for me it's not the accolades no it's not the money we raise it's always, always about the people whose lives we change for the better.
0: And um, the lives you save.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think nothing in life is guaranteed. Um, so I'm always quite careful to say the lives we're saving mm-hmm. because um, uh, cancer is an incredibly intelligent disease that can find its way back to your system or has never even left your system. Um, so even with an early diagnosis, it might come back at some stage but what we have done is proven that we're giving people a better chance of survival and that is something that is something huge um so if you can give people the best tools and the best advice and the best chance at beating a disease that is so hard to beat (laughs) um
0: then we've done something right and that's what i'm proud that's what i'm definitely most proud amazing and What is the most important message that you would like to communicate around breast cancer and breast cancer awareness?
1: I think the most important message, I mean, first and foremost, because that's the message of Copperfeel, is that you know your body better than anyone else. And whatever relationship you have with your body at this moment, it can change. It can improve. You can love yourself believe it or not you can love your body and it's that relationship and that's those conversations that you need to start having with your body that are so healthy and could save your life Mm -hmm. um like get to know yourself know and educate yourself like be your own best health advocate um like i can't if i just that's a message that i wish someone had said to me before i was diagnosed Mm essentially
0: And for those people who are, you know, um, have someone close to them uh, who's been affected by cancer and who ha- want to help spread the word um, in breast cancer awareness, what would you say to them in terms of what what can people do? What, what can how can they get involved? And specifically with Copperfield,
1: I think it's really important to listen to whoever has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Ask them what they need. Ask them to share their thoughts and feelings um and don't shy away from those conversations because they're so important you might miss uh you know um and don't, and uh, yeah don't assume feeling okay they <laughs> are. Um, but also knowing that not knowing what to say is okay too um sometimes it's just the press of someone being there is enough um, and don't take for granted the little things like little chores, like making a meal for someone. It's very great. <laughs> um, they're the most. They're the things that I appreciate most. It's the little things that help you in life. Uh, nourishment is great, um, and and just be a good ally to them. Like uh, listen to the way that they want to speak about their cancer too. I think this is quite an important one because I think when you know we are all. I mean, we seem to be hearing about cancer death a lot at the moment, um, but the way it's talked about and the way someone's life is depicted might not be what how they were, how they wish to be depicted or how their disease how they wish their disease was talked about. So, I think ask someone how they would want to talk about their bodies and their diseases, um, and uh, because I think that conversation is a really good one to have, <laughs> and it's really important because um, when someone is particularly negative around my illness to me um that leaves me in a negative state of mind whereas um i'd rather people take cues from me so if i'm saying i don't see disease cancer as an evil thing in my body it's something that i'm working alongside um it's something that i've I've had to befriend because it's a part of me um then i i hope that the people around me would kind of mirror that and take that on board um because it's not on the other person to direct the narrative about your illness if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think that's incredibly val- a valuable insight there into into kind of, you know, how to help and support mm-hmm. someone and the that idea of obviously not just listening but how, you know, how they want to talk about it. Yeah. You've been really open on social media about your journey and also your double mastectomy, and um, what a positive decision it was because you had your first mastectomy and then you chose to have your other healthy boob uh, taken off. So that because that's what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is do you find that that part of treatment is is re- really hard to process uh, for a lot of women? Yes, yeah.
1: I can't. I mean, I can't speak on behalf of other women and how they connect with their breasts and what that. I mean, breasts mean to them. Um, but to me by the time I made that decision to have my healthy breast removed like I couldn't give a toss yeah (laughs) You know, I got to a stage where I was like, I just want to be symmetrical. To me, it mattered. Um, and I just wanted to feel slightly more comfortable. And I prioritised that at last. Like, I think for a long time, I shelved that idea because I was maybe too busy with the charity, too busy focusing on what was good rather than what was bad. And then I decided to prioritise what was important to me in my body. And I decided to have the healthy one removed. And thankfully, I... Um, my decision to do that was greeted with of course we will do that for you by an amazing surgeon that I have um it wasn't questioned it wasn't debated it was simply agreed to um and I could have it done and it made me feel so much better and it made me feel even more empowered about my body and how I want to feel in it um how others feel about theirs is obviously so subjective and it's up to them but I think i mean i think since my diagnosis i mean it was 12 years ago i think we've seen a huge shift in um different body types being accepted in the media um obviously social media is so prevalent now it wasn't when i was diagnosed instagram didn't exist which is you know weird to think um so we're seeing a lot more acceptance around you know whatever people choose to do with their bodies the body positivity movement, cancer awareness, I think it's morphed together quite well. And I feel like people who've chosen to not have reconstruction um, uh, are just as valid in everyone else's space as, as the you know, as anyone else. Sometimes I, I think back to that conversation that I had with the plastic surgeon 12 years ago, and he was on the surgery that he could do um to basically we re- create a boob that I'd lost and even me out Um, at that time I didn't see it as a priority for me survival was a priority I didn't see anything about the aesthetic of my body as a priority but then he didn't let me consider that as an option myself like um, through his his um, conversation it wasn't a well how do you actually feel about your body it was more this is what I can do for you you tell me if you want it or not and I think now I think that conversation would be different and that is really good and reassuring and I'm happy that that is the case for so many women Mm -hmm. who are every day being told that they have breast cancer and they're losing a part of their body that potentially is a huge thing for them to me it wasn't and I feel lucky about that but to others it is and it is a symbol of femininity to them
0: I want to talk about your new book glittering a turd uh, which is all about your story and about Copperfield and how you have basically turned your pain in into power. Um, and I think something that comes across from that is like your zest and your possibility uh, that you have about life, despite what you've been through. Um, so the big one, how how have you turned your pain into power? Like I'm in complete awe of of how you've managed to, you know take the worst thing that's happened to you and actually turn it into something that's, that's in, incredibly life-changing for, for, for yourself and others? Well, if we look back over history, <laughs> uh, here's a bit of history lesson for us all.
1: If we look at a lot of the charities that exist today, British Red Cross, Macmillan, all of these huge organisations, they have all been created out of someone's um, misery. Something horrific has happened to instigate something good like so many times has happened so like something good generally is created out of something bad like throughout life if you look at like think about so many things in life that's happened because of someone's negative situation um, and my story like my story and the existence of copperfield is no different to that um yes i mean so many people say to me oh if it had been me i would have probably just like sat in a corner and cried all day or hid under a duvet but um, perhaps it's something within me that said, no, that's not an option for me. I feel like something has to change. I want to use the, any energy that I've got left and, and, and pour it into an organization that could ensure that what happened to me doesn't happen to anyone else. Sure, th- there's probably something in, like internally, integrally within me that created that energy, And that enthusiasm and passion to do that. But I do feel like from a lot of pain in life, something good happens.
0: You've survived the unsurvivable, basically, which the book says, which I loved, by the way. What would you say your biggest learning was from writing the book? I think
1: writing the book allowed me to reflect on so many things over the last five years, which is so good. And I think everyone should give themselves permission to kind of write a book so they get a chance to reflect on life a bit more. Um, but what really stuck out to me was um, how straight after my diagnosis, I never allowed myself any breathing space. So there was no time to really sit in my feelings, sit in my grief. There was only ever doing, doing, doing. And I think for the 12, last 12 years, it's been that. Still, um, there's always this constant need to almost prove to myself that if I slow down, I will die. Uh, and that that kind of disprove that to myself. Um, I I guess maybe I was living in a sort of fear, but not really ever acknowledging that. Um, and I think writing the book finally allowed me to acknowledge that and kind of
0: Uh, breathe a bit more and kind of allow myself that time now I'm not surprised Uh, what would you say have you prioritized in terms of surviving what I suppose what are your tips for living well for me it's about
1: the not doing (laughs) the being (laughs) the actually it's not the big things it's a combination of all the little things that make the big things Um, and I when I uh, I mean examples of those literally sitting on one sofa watching Netflix that is a little thing and it's a joyous thing and I guess in a way me writing about this in the book and me saying this now I hope allows and gives permission to all those other people that are being diagnosed to just sit for a while and be in that moment and uh feel all the feelings and not feel like they have to do um because I feel again social media isn't always always oh, that great is it uh but it, it kind of creates a sort of pressure and you kind of pit yourself against each other so much because of social media and so I feel like there's this unspoken pressure to achieve and do and um uh climb mountains like physically climb mountains mentally climb mountains um do a fundraiser find a cure like do all these epic things and I just think I think once you're once you've been ta- once your body is saying Hey, wait a minute! There's this thing that I've now done in your body. It's time to listen. I think we should take heed from that. And I think I never did that, and I'm so glad that I have that lesson now.
0: I feel like because of you know because of your your experience, you've got kind of quite a deep wisdom now of your mind, body, and spirit kind of connection. Mm -hmm. How important is that connection to you, and what do you do to kind of nurture it?
1: Being in nature (laughs) is a good way to nurture what's going on in your head what's going on in your body stepping away from the grind is the I think the only way I can really tune into what I actually need what I'm actually feeling to me having done a lot doesn't really produce much goodness doesn't create any clarity doesn't help me overcome the third hurdles um so my I, decision I to move away from London six years ago and step away from being the CEO of the charity because I found, we, well, we were so lucky to have someone in our organisation who could be the CEO and lead the organisation. That's when I knew that um, I was allowing myself more headspace, uh, yeah. moving to Cornwall. You literally have more physical space to think, to breathe.
0: How did you look after yourself physically when you're going through something as demanding as cancer treatment? Moving my body exercise 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 it's not talked about enough um
1: and i'm really glad that i have an oncologist who literally will prescribe moving your body alongside the drugs and the pills you have to pop and all the iv the chemotherapy that you might be having um because there was research to show that um moving your body um and keeping active alongside treatment helps it work better helps your um blood better um to make sure that you
0: you are always healthy enough to have your treatments um so that I think that's a big thing and one thing I also noticed with you is that you would always dance when when you know when you have when you're doing your your, your festive feel and at festivals and when you've been putting things on like I would always see you at, at, at those events moving and dancing and and kind of you know enjoying I think if I can I will yeah um, and I think once you
1: have an illness that you feel at some point will debilitate you uh, you kind of want to honor what it can do all the more um but don't don't wait until you are told that your yeah. body might shut down sooner than you want
0: uh, to you know move that body that is doing so much for you at this point in time. In terms of uh, with your mental health how did you get through your treatment what what support did you have in place and what coping mechanisms well, very lucky to
1: have a very supportive group of friends um, who are very good at all sorts of distractions <laughs> from the scary stuff, um, but also allowing me to, you know, voice when I want to share some scary stuff. Um, but also hospice care and palliative care. Um, I am a big hospice, pr- like I, I, I could t- t- talk about hospice care all day long, and I, and I want to deem. De- de- I see it as a bit of my role to demystify um, what hospice care is because, you know, um, I think people only see that it's something that you access when you are dying. Um, uh, But palliative care and hospice care are there to help you live, not die. (laughs) Um, Obviously at some point hospice care might be there to help you die in the best way possible in in a pain-free way, but mostly they're there to ensure that you have a good life. And again, research shows us that the sooner you access palliative care and palliative means um things like uh ensuring that you um have the right pain medications that uh someone is speaking to you about nutrition, exercise, how to keep your mind and body and everything else well um and the sooner you uh access palliative care, the longer people actually live so it's like it's something that you just don't ever assume um so I think counseling hospice care but within hospice care you find so many things which include counseling um Uh, complementary therapies um you know lots of really helpful things that help you live better
0: I love that and I feel like one of the biggest lessons that you've learned from your book is acceptance I'd love to hear if you've got any wise words for all our listeners on acceptance and how it's helped you
1: I guess um I've had to kind of accept a few things and for me I'd rather break it down into more palatable and manageable size uh chunks like reading a book here here and there um uh that I feel a lot more um I just feel it's way more freeing um and I'm able to not be completely consumed by the fear of dying so much now
0: I've also (laughs) read that you, you you're doing an end of life doula course yes um so this uh
1: I think people, when they hear of doulas, they often assume it's, um, it's just birth doulas that yeah. exist, but there's obviously the other end of the spectrum, which is death. And there are people that exist that help you um, towards the end too and help you have a good death. And that might be with practical ways, but also just being there. Um, when you're a death doula, you become an ally for that person. Um, you are a listener and you kind of like carry them through to the end. Um but not in- phys- in the physical sense, literally mm. just being there with a, pr- a really with a really knowing presence, and it's understanding that a bit more, but i'm not doing it because I want to become a death dealer because i I think I've got too many jobs on at the moment, but
0: yeah, I was going to say I <laughs> you've kind of got a lot on your plate at the moment, Chris yeah,
1: so it's more about again this like deep dive into uh, like understanding what happens towards the end of life, um preparing myself for all eventualities I believe that everyone could think about their own funerals or their advanced care planning which is like a document that you fill out around what you would want to happen towards the end of life do you want to be resuscitated like all these things because it it also then helps the family and friends in your life who feel like there's these big questions that have not been answered when someone dies and it's a very horrible place to be
0: and I think, but it's this really important conversation to have and mm. I feel like as a society yeah. we really shy away from it
1: yeah yeah exactly and uh, and to not be feared um and I and I do think like from my experiences of having conversations with people um that there's probably people in your life right now and I
0: and I want you to do the same pitch yeah. <laughs> at some point today is to have a conversation it's funny because I actually I talked with my partner about with my husband about it and we sort of say, you know, yeah. like how would you like to be celebrated? And obviously yeah. it, it's yeah. it, you know, they can be fun conversations yeah. as well as yeah. deep, heavy, yeah. real, important conversations. Um I just want to finish finally on our quick fire. I'd love you to share the best piece of advice on each of our fem Foundry pillars. Uh, so they are mental health, physical health, financial health and spiritual health. So let's kick off the first one. How do you look after your mental health? going for a walk excellent and how do you keep up your physical health what's important for you literally having a good stretch love the stretch what kind of a stretch do you do child's pose child's pose amazing Um, (laughs) how do you how do you manage your financial health
1: um I think when it comes to kind of a huge topic and I think a lot of people are scared of accessing the right help and tools and um, when it comes to financial help um so if anything like what was helpful for me many, many years ago is accessing the financial help that you can face just like Macmillan
0: that's really that's that's really helpful thank you and ha- what about your um spiritual health are you are you into spirituality and if so what is what do you what do you do what kind of actions do you take
1: I I think that I can cultivate some kind of connection with spirituality And I think it's for me, I can cultivate my uh, link to spirituality by simply listening to a song that really, really moves me. So I could be walking on a beach and I could be listening to a really soulful, meaningful, deep song and it transcends me to a place that is not on this earth. And I think that that in itself is spirituality and it's connecting with something that is deep within you, a real knowing something very calming um, and reassuring.
0: That's such a yeah. lovely way to, to look, at, look at it and such a, a, a nice, um, yeah, such a kind of an interesting connection in terms of mm-hmm. you know, the music and I loved your description mm-hmm. there. In your book, you mention seizing the fuck it moments and I'd love for you to share with us what those moments are for you. A few examples,
1: going to Euro Disney on a whim. Yeah. Um it could be saying, could you I do the washing up right now or do I leave it to later and go for a walk instead? That's a big fucking moment. <laughs> but I feel like people are probably doing those things all the time but don't realise that they are very good fucking moment decisions. <laughs> um but it's it's kind of to me it means like not get bogged down by the day to day boring shit in life, even if it's five minutes come back to it later.
0: I love that. Amazing. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me on Profoundly. I feel like we've covered a lot. Obviously, the lasting message
1: is always check your boobs. (laughs) That's what I'd like to leave you with.
0: Brilliant. Um, Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me. The wonderful Chris there, encouraging all of us to check our boobs and Copperfield. For more information on her incredible charity, do head to copperfeel.org. Now, it's the time in the podcast where we hear from one of our leaders. And this week, it's one that I definitely need to do better with. It's financial health. Here is Natalie Pinkham on what works for her. Keep it in the black. Don't go into the red, because I tell you what, when I get my credit card statement through, I just try and swipe it away off my phone because I just don't want to face it but actually to just deal with things head on I feel so much better for it just pick off the small things you know the low hanging fruit or
1: just te- just take out those little jobs that need doing and suddenly they don't seem so overwhelming same with your finances
0: Natalie there on dealing with our finances just start small and just deal with things bit by bit now, a huge thanks to my guest this week, Chris Halenga. Do check out her wonderful book, Glittering a Turd. I really did enjoy reading it. A big thanks for tuning in to Profoundly this week. Do rate and subscribe to us. I love seeing your comments on the App Store and get in touch with us at FemFoundry app or at Pips Taylor on Insta. And of course, you can download the FemFoundry app in the App Store. I will be back next week. Have a good one.